Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 1. We've started studying through the book of Luke uh, about a month ago, and we'll continue where we left off. And in the uh, interest of having interesting names for our sermons, I came up with one for mine, and the name of the sermon is, uh, What's in a Name? What's in a Name? Hopefully that will stimulate you as you as I read through the passage. What's in a name? Luke chapter 1 and verse, starting at verse 57. Now Elizabeth full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. Now so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. And his mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they all marveled. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of a child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. The Lord blessed the reading of his word. So whose name are we talking about? John, right. The name is John. What's so special about that name? John. Well, the meaning in the Hebrew is Yohanan simply means uh, the grace of the Lord or the grace of God or God had grace. And that's not what the sermon is about. <laughs> they, they, as you're reading this, if this is the first 
uh, sermon you've been to here at Calvary Bible Chapel, or if you've missed a sermon a couple of weeks ago, you'd be wondering, what's going on in this passage? Why is there such a big deal about what this boy is named? And, um, you know, his mother wants him to be named. Relatives want some name. His mother wants a different name. Uh, finally, they sign to the father. Why are they signing to the father instead of simply speaking to the father? Why is he getting a, a tablet for writing instead of simply saying what the name is? And why, when he say it, all of a sudden his mouth opens and he can start praising God? Right? A lot of questions. What's going on here? To answer the questions, we, got it. we have to turn back. About a page in your Bible. We're still in chapter 1 of Luke. This is a passage that we covered three weeks ago. So you're forgiven if you've forgotten and excused if you were not here. But you're here now. So Luke chapter 1, uh, just a quick review here. We'll start at verse 11. There was a certain encounter that Zechariah had with an angel. And this happened in the temple of God. Zechariah was ministering as a priest. And while they're in front of the altar, an angel shows up. Okay, And this is what the angel tells him. Verse 11, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear came upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So right there we are told why the name of the baby needs to be John. Okay, we don't understand quite everything else yet, but we understand, okay, a baby is going to be born, his name is going to be John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. You can understand why John will have uh, joy and gladness, because he's been praying for a baby for many, many years. We don't know exactly how old he, he was. We're told in verse 7 that he and Elizabeth had no child, and they were both well advanced in years. So well past childbearing. I don't know why that, what that would be today. 60 years old. Let's say he and his wife are 60 years old. Haven't had a child. Been praying for a child all these years. So yes, he should have great joy, okay? But many others will rejoice at his birth, verse 14, and it gives a reason of why they will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. This is talking about John, the baby that was just born. He will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is why many will rejoice. It's not just that God gave a child to an old couple, which is nice, but uh, this child will be really special. He'll be filled from the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and he will be uh, turning many of the children of Israel to God. So he'll be taking people and making them think of God, turn their minds, their hearts back to the God of Israel. And uh, the verses in verse 17 and might seem a bit obscure because it's taken from a passage in the Old Testament and it clarifies that he is preparing the people of God for the coming of the Messiah. What this is saying is your son John will be the forerunner of the Messiah. God will finally fulfill his promises to 
the nation of Israel and send them the Savior he's been promising all these years. And your son will be the one who will prepare the nation before him. So good news. That's a reason why many people should be rejoicing. <coughs> However, we have a problem here. And the problem is, starts in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. The problem is Zechariah doesn't believe it. And if it's not obvious enough from what he says here, the angel points it out in the, in the, next, uh, in the response to Zechariah. Zechariah just didn't believe what God said. And I want to sympathize with Zechariah. Um, it was hard. They've been praying for many years, and God hasn't answered their prayers for many years. They're old. His wife is barren. It's humanly impossible what the angel is promising. So it's, I can sympathize with Zechariah. He has a hard time believing uh, what the angel is telling him. Um, I think uh, uh, there could be similar occasions in our life where we struggle believing God. One could be a person that uh, is told that Jesus paid for his sins and God has made a way for him to be saved and all he has to do is believe the gospel. And a person thinks, no, not me. That's impossible. I couldn't be saved. I'm too much of a sinner. I'm too old. God can't change a person like me. Um, it could be one of us that God wants us to serve him. And God is giving us a certain gift and a ministry to serve him with. And we think that's impossible. God, I can't do it. And both of those things are true. It's impossible for me to be changed or for me to change myself. It's impossible for me to do something great for God. But it's not impossible for God to do it. For with God, all things are possible. And uh, we, we had last week or two weeks ago a counterexample for this. As, as hard as we think that this may have been for Zechariah, it would have had to have been harder for Mary. Remember, Mary has the same angel visitor a few months later, and he tells Mary she will have a son. Well, there's a problem there. She has never known a man. Even more impossible than for an old man and a wife to have a child. And her son wasn't just going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, he was going to be the Messiah. And yet she believes. Okay, so it's possible to believe God for impossible things. We have an example of that. And the other thing we should be, uh, remember, let, let me go ahead and finish the passage here as I'm reading. It says, the angel answered and said to him, this is the response to Zechariah's unbelief. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So the angel's offended. He says, what do you mean you don't believe me? I'm the angel Gabriel. I stand before God. I came to give you good news. And you're telling me you don't believe what I'm saying? Uh, and, and he adds to it what we might consider a curse, it could be considered a sign, right? Zechariah asked for a sign. How shall I know this? Well, let me tell you. You're not going to be able to speak from now until these things are fulfilled. That's a sign. But it's kind of a judgment upon him, also for unbelieving. It's a judgment of God. He can't speak anymore. Is God being too harsh? Is the angel being too harsh with Zechariah? We need to remember that this is serious business. When God tells us something and we choose not to believe him, it's not a morally neutral action. It says this in... Excuse me. Get my notes straight here. Uh, it says this in 1 John chapter 5. 
He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he did not believe the testimony that God has given of his son. If I come and I tell you something and you don't believe me, what are you calling me? A liar, right? Now, maybe that's not so bad because I am a liar. I've told many lies in my life, so just because I happen to say the truth 90% of, let's hope, 99% of the time, you know, wouldn't be so wrong to doubt me, but has God ever told a lie? God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he promised and will he not make it good? And yet when God gives us a promise and we choose not to believe it, we're calling God a liar. And that's not acceptable. And because of that, what Zechariah is doing here is serious, and that's why this judgment upon him. And that answers the second question that we had here. Why is he dumb? Why, is he, why when the question is asked of him what the name of the child should be, he has to write it on the tablet? He can't speak. He can't speak. He's, in a sense, under this judgment of God. Okay. Um, next question. Why... Do these people, so we're back to Zechariah, uh, the passage we were looking at in verses 59 through 66. Why were his neighbors going to call the son Zechariah? Why weren't they going to call his son John? The answer is obvious. He's never told them. Okay, Zechariah has never told his neighbors about what God has told him. Now, don't give him a break and say, well, he can't speak. You know, give the poor guy a break. He can write. He writes here. He has told his wife about it because his wife knew about it. If you remember in the previous passage when Mary comes to her, Elizabeth, she's got, she's got things together. She understands what happened. She knows who her baby is. She knows who Mary's baby is. The only way she would know these things is if John, if Zechariah told her what the angel has told him. So he hasn't told him. Why hasn't he told him? Well, because he's still struggling with faith. Okay? What he's been told are great news. God's final promise of salvation will be fulfilled in their lifetime. After waiting for God for so many centuries, finally his salvation is here. This is good news. And yet he's not telling anybody. Why? Well, he's struggling in his heart. And uh, application to us, Convicting to me when I think about it, why am I not telling people more about God's wonderful plan of salvation and the work that has been accomplished for their sin? You know, is there sometimes doubts in my heart or do I wrestle with that more than I should be? Or do I not recognize this is good news that people need to hear more, need to hear? <clears throat> okay, the next question uh, is probably more obvious. Why is his wife interfering with the ceremony? Uh, Maybe it's not more obvious. Well, obviously, Elizabeth knows that the name of the child should be John. Okay. And uh, as I think Rick noted before, she seemed to be really clued into what's going on. Um, verse 45 of the chapter, she tells Mary, Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of the things which were told her from the Lord. We talked about it earlier today in the study, how that... Uh, while a, a woman's place in the meeting may be to be silenced, the women could be a lot more spiritual than the guys. And this is a case where Elizabeth is showing a lot more sensitivity to the things of God than Zechariah is. She believes what's been told Zechariah, even though Zechariah himself hasn't. 
And yet the fact she speaks in this situation is showing something about Zechariah himself. Because this is, uh, this is a ceremony. The circumcision wasn't just a couple of guys walking to your house and you circumcise your child and everybody lives. There was a religious significance. They were fulfilling the commandment that God has given through Moses. And you can go today to a Jewish circumcision and there'll be a guy called a Moel, who's kind of like a rabbi, and he'll conduct the service. And um, as a father, it was your responsibility to circumcise your son. But most Jewish fathers are not up to the task. So part of the uh, job of the Moel is to do the circumcision, but part of the ceremony is the father has to give his right or responsibility to the Moel and say, would you please do it? So, so this is a big deal that happens here. And for, for Elizabeth to be speaking is a little bit out of place, which shows Zechariah was not fulfilling his responsibility. He knew what was going to happen in this ceremony. He knew that his son would be given a name. He should have made sure, all he would have had to do is go to the Moel on the side and write and say, by the way, I want my son's name to be John. Or my son's name is John. He hasn't done it. He hasn't communicated to his, to his neighbors and relatives. He hasn't communicated to whoever is in charge of the ceremony, uh, which again shows he's still struggling. Zacharias is struggling with the promise of God to him. <clears throat> okay, finally, the question we ask is why? Why when, when Zacharias is finally Oh, why when Zechariah writes the name, his name is John, his mouth opens, and he starts praising God. Well, uh, again, it, it could be obvious. There's actually two possible answers. Uh, the first one is the angel said. The angel said when all these things will be fulfilled, that's when you'll be able to speak, or you will not be able to speak until all these things are fulfilled. Well, one of the things the angel said would happen is, and you shall call his name John. So another thing was fulfilled, was fulfilled that the angel said, so it could be just the timing of it. Uh, I think there's more than that. I think God, after Zechariah demonstrated unbelief in God, and because of that, the judgment of God has come upon him. God expected him to demonstrate faith. And calling his son John was a demonstration of faith because he showed he, it, it showed he believed what the angel has said. If he discounted the angel decided... Forget that angel. I don't know what that angel was talking about. I don't believe a word he said. He would have no reason to call his name John. So his calling his son, giving his son the name John, shows now that he really believed what the angel has told him. Which, remember, includes not just that he will have a child. That has been fulfilled. But the fact that his child will be the person who will introduce the Messiah to Israel. That his child will be the forerunner of Israel. So a demonstration of faith followed by the lifting of the judgment or the ability of John to speak. Um, and just a, to add a little bit to the significance of it, this was clearly against what society was expecting. It's sometimes easy to, to say, well, I'm a Christian, or I believe this, or I believe that, when you're around other Christians. It doesn't take a whole lot of faith to do that. In fact, it makes you more accepted and welcome, so you like to do that. But... Uh, that's not the circumstances. There seems to be some amount of pressure here on what the name of this child should be. I have a cousin whose name is John Thomas V. Can you, can you imagine him having a son and then changing the name to, you know, Bob or something? <laughs> no, you, have to, you have to follow, you have to follow the family tradition. And there was pressure. 
Probably Zechariah's father's name was Zechariah, if Zechariah was the firstborn. And maybe you could go back Zechariah's generations. Or if not, well, there'll be other names in the family that have been repeated in the same way to give honor to members of the family. And Zechariah is expected to, to do the same. So calling his name John was an act of going against the flow. Okay, and that means some real faith. I, when I uh, started coming to Calvary Bible Chapel, I was an unbeliever. Uh, from a Jewish background. And uh, praise the Lord, people were showing me things in the scriptures that convinced me that that um, God is real and that Jesus really is the Messiah. And when I became convinced intellectually that Jesus was the Messiah, I said, well, I guess I'm a Christian. To me, that's what it meant to be a Christian, to believe that Jesus was the Messiah that God sent the Jews. <clears throat> and uh, I remember coming to a breaking of bread and, and partaking and Rick took me aside afterward and said, okay, well, how is it going with you? Rick was the person who was working with me and sharing God's word with me, so he was interested. Boy, he's partaking of, of the Lord's Supper. You know, maybe he's saved. And I said, yeah, I'm a Christian now. I believe Jesus is the Messiah. And, and uh, Rick said, well, praise the Lord. You know, let's start talking about baptism. And I said, whoa, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to be baptized. Why? <clears throat> because being baptized would have gone very strongly against what my family believed. Okay, it was really, it's really an act of demonstrating that you believe in Jesus, you trust in Jesus, you stand with Jesus. And to a Jewish, uh, a Jewish uh, culture, that's the anathema. That's the worst possible thing you can do as a Jew. You can do whatever. Don't believe that God exists. Uh, become a, a Hindu. Just don't say that Jesus is the Messiah. So for me to be baptized recognizing Jesus is the Messiah would have gone strongly against what my family believed, would have gone against the flow. And I wasn't ready to do that. And Rick recognized it as a sign that maybe not all was well with my faith and said, well, then please don't partake in the Lord's Supper. It was good discernment on Rick's side. I wasn't saved yet at that time. <clears throat> okay, so we, we talked about uh, the struggles of Zechariah's faith. And this is just to try to apply to us. We, we all could have, might be struggling with faith, and it's God's grace that he continues to work with us, as he continued to work with Zechariah. We saw Zechariah's a profession of faith or victory over his unbelief. Now, uh, let's look at some results of faith, uh, which we'll spend the rest of the passage about. First, the first result is really that the judgment of God was lifted from him. And that's a great example for us. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So there's an example here. Was Zechariah saved at this moment? I don't know. It's often difficult to tell before the time of Jesus when a person was saved. It's the first evidence we have of Zechariah's believing in God. So maybe, maybe he was saved at that time. Um, but uh, clearly... Uh, he demonstrates faith and the judgment of God is removed. In the same way, we're told if we believe God, when we believe God's promise of salvation, that's all it takes. The judgment of God is lifted up. Praise the Lord. That's all it takes. Uh, the next one is he becomes a testimony to others. If you notice in verse 65 and 66, it says that uh, fear came upon all who dwelt around them. And these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea and all those who heard them, kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord 
was with him. God was now using him as a testimony for others. His decision to stand with God and acknowledge, um, profess his faith in God's promise of salvation for Israel was an example for other people. Uh, I remember that for me when I came to Calvary Bible Chapel the first time. What got me going was seeing the evidence of people trusting God and believing his word and applying it to their lives. In the same way, God wants to use us in the lives of others. We have a song we often sing. Uh, it's called, Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. Anybody knows what the lower lights are? So, it used to be in the days when you didn't have GPS and other navigation tools for ships. Uh, they would have things called like lighthouses. A heard of lighthouses? Yeah, everybody heard of lighthouses. Basically, the lighthouse would be a light for the ship to see, and that would guide it to the shore. Okay, now, a lighthouse wasn't always enough. And so they would also burn lights, burn fires at the edge of the shore. And that would help the ship see even better the outline where the rocks were, so it can safely go into, into the harbor. Well, let the, the lower lights be burning is an application made to us, that we should be like the lower lights. The lighthouse, if you would, is the word of God. And the word of God is guiding everyone to heaven or to the safety of the harbor. But God also wants to use the lower lights like you and me. He wants to use our faith as a testimony to others to point others in the right direction. And that's what God was doing in the case of Zechariah. He was using his lower lights to guide other people to him. <clears throat> the third, the third um, results of, of uh, Zechariah's faith, his decision to now believe God's promise, uh, we saw that his mouth was open. And not just his mouth was open, it says that he, when his tongue was loosed, he started praising God. And not just that, we're going to read... In the rest of the chapter, actually we read it, but the rest of the section we're covering talks about his prophecy. Uh, Paul says this. He says, And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. You cannot speak or preach the word of God or share it with others unless you believe it. So really the results of Zechariah's believing was that now he could really share the word of God with others. Now he could really start telling people the good news that the angel told him. Up to now he couldn't. Now that he believed, he can really start sharing it with others, which is probably one of the reasons God opened his mouth. He finally had something to say. So God is enabling him now to say it. Okay, so the rest of the passage is this prophecy that Zechariah made. Um, it's a... Uh, it's a wonderful prophecy in many ways. One of the unique things about it is it's in some sense still an Old Testament prophecy, even though it's in the New Testament. The reason I'm saying it's Old Testament, Jesus wasn't born yet. Certainly Jesus hasn't started speaking yet. So a lot of the revelation that came later on that later writers can write about was still not available to him. All that he knew, other than what the Holy Spirit revealed to him supernaturally, was the Old Testament. And uh, because of it, there's really a very strong Old Testament flavor to this prophecy that might make it in some way more difficult to understand. You kind of have to stand and have the Old Testament perspective to, to really appreciate it. And I'll try to give that to you as we go through it. So the first section here, there's perhaps six major sections to this prophecy, and we don't have time to get into, into things in too much detail. But the first section here... A blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed 
his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David is really the summary of the good news he has to share and that the Messiah has come. But uh, a couple of things here about it. One is he t- talks here about God visiting. And uh, we're commanded in the Bible to visit the widows and the fatherless. Why visit them? Well, the idea is that we should see how they're doing. We should not ignore them and their time and their need. We should, we should acquaint ourselves with them and the needs that they have. And that speaks about the Lord. I, I tried witnessing to my grandfather in the past, and uh, it's hard to take someone that's really so far out of, uh, of um, knowing God to really bring him to the gospel. So I, you start in steps. The first one is, is try to show him the evidence of God in creation. And he was willing to follow me there and recognize, yes, creation does seem to speak of a wonderful creator. Well, the next is, well, you know, what, what is your responsibility toward that creator? And how is this, what, what is this creator thinking of you? And uh, to my grandfather, that was too much. No, no, well, God created the world, but he's not interested in me as a person. Well, that's not true. That's what it says here. He visited us. He's, he cares about you. He's concerned about you. He sees your needs, and he is concerned about those needs. Uh, the second word here is redeemed his people. Redeemed is a word we don't use often. Uh, probably the most common use of it is related to a pawn shop. I'm not sure if many people even know what pawn shops are these days. Well, you could go uh, on uh, Google and uh, Google uh, uh, pawngo.com and see that it's real. They still have pawn shops. Uh, some of them are online now. <clears throat> and the way it works is this. If you need money, let's say uh, you're in some sort of a financial bind. You're, you're late in paying your rent. You don't have quite enough money, and you need an extra $1,000 to pay it. Well, you could try to go to a bank and ask for the money, but the bank is going to have you start filling out forms, and it'll typically take a certain amount of time to approve it. You're not going to get your money in time. You may not get your money at all from the bank, depending on your credit rating. Well, you can go to a pawn shop, and you can take them, uh, take off your uh, wedding ring, or actually, let's not do your wedding ring, your grandmother's wedding ring. You wouldn't take your own up. But your grandmother left you, in her will, a really beautiful wedding ring, and it's probably worth $2,000. So you can bring it to the pawn shop and say, here, you know, I'd like $1,000. And the pawn shop will say, no problem. You know, we'll take that. We'll keep it for you. Here's $1,000. Bring us $1,100 next week. We'll give you your grandmother's ring back. Okay, that's, They have no problem because they have the value in front of them. So they're not concerned about it. Now, if you want to get your grandmother's ring back, you'll come with your $1,100 and uh, get it back. That's called redeeming. You, you redeemed your grandmother's wedding ring, which is a nice thing to do, right? They commend not giving it to start with and not even being laid in your rent. But uh, <clears throat> that's what redeeming means. It's claiming back something that's yours. And what this passage is saying here is that God is, is coming to get us and is claiming back something that is his. He is interested in us. He wants us back. Um, God didn't sell us. So that's where you have to forget the illustration. God didn't need money, and that's what he gave us. It says this in uh, Isaiah 50. That says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? 
or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourself, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. So it's really our sins. Because of our sins, we are the ones who sold ourselves. We didn't want to be with God. We walked away. We wanted our sin instead. That's what separated us from God. And God says, in spite of it all, I want you back to myself. And that's the purpose he sent the Messiah, to claim us, to bring us back to be with him. <clears throat> Finally, we have here the horn, the horn of salvation. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. What does it mean, the horn of salvation? Again, in Jewish imagery, the horn was the strength or the power of the animal. If you think about it, you have a, a deer. Well, a deer seems to be this cuddly, nice creature. You're not afraid of it. But uh, if you happen to walk into a buck that has this huge horn on his head with the pointy point and he's looking at you, you'd feel a little bit concerned. It happened to me once in Berkeley. Why? Because the horn is powerful and the edge is sharp and there's enough strength in that deer if he wants to. He can do you some real damage with his horns. Well, so why is the Messiah here described as the horn of salvation for us? Why? Because he is the strength of salvation. This is something unique to Christianity. If you go to other religions, uh, there's a mosque down the street, uh, you'll find religious leaders who says, well, we'll tell you how to get right with God. You need to do this and this and that, and then you can be right with God. They're not going to do it for you. They're not going to help you do it. They just tell you what to do. It's not so in Christianity. God didn't just say, well, do this, 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 and that, and you'll be saved. He sent us a savior. No other religion, as far as I know, has a savior, someone whose job it is to take you to heaven. But that's what God did. He raised us a horn of salvation. He gave us someone who can actually do the work for us and save us. Praise the Lord. Uh, the next section we have, or the first section, was really the work of salvation, God saving us. The next section in this prophecy, verses 70 through 73, speaks about the assurance of salvation. And it's interesting, you don't see Zechariah here saying, let me tell you about what happened to me in the temple and how the angel showed up and how me and my wife, we were barren and so old and yet God gave us a child and I was dumb for a year and then I was able to speak. He doesn't refer to any of that here. He just refers to the word of God. God has promised. God has promised. Since the word began, his covenant with Abraham, he points us to the word of God. Believe me because of what it says here. Don't believe me because of my life experiences, is what Zacharias was saying. And he's not the only one that does it. You have uh, Peter in Second Peter uh, saying something like this. He says this, We also have the prophetic word made more sure which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the, dawn, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Peter, who could have appealed to seeing Christ transfigured before him on a mountain and hearing the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, said instead, well, we have something even more sure than that. Here's the word of God. Believe what it says which uh, shows that we today are in no way inferior to people of that time when it comes to believe the promises of God. We have the same thing they had and more. Zechariah and even Peter had just the Old Testament to refer to. And today we have the complete Bible as the promise of God for us to believe in. Uh, the next section in this 
prophecy, uh, I named as what it is we're saved from. We have it in verse in verse 71 uh, first, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all those who hate us. And then we have it again in verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. This is where it really helps to enter a little bit of an Old Testament mindset. What does he mean when he says to be saved from the enemies? Well, um, if you were to ask probably any person listening to Zechariah saying this, we're going to be saved from our enemies, they would have said, finally, we're going to get the Romans off our back. And that's true. They needed to get the Romans, you could say, off their back. But that's not what Jesus came to save them foremost of. We know because Jesus never saved them from the Romans. And he was not interested in getting involved with that. When they were trying to get him into some argument about taxes to Rome, he said, you know, give, give Caesar what's unto Caesar and to God what's unto God. He avoided the whole political dispute. Now, this is, again, going a little bit out of the passage and, and trying to help us have this, this view or understanding. The Jews were somewhat justified in expecting to be saved from their earthly enemies. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that say that, will, that exactly that will happen, that God will save them from their earthly enemies. There's also, through the Messiah, nonetheless, that the Messiah will save them from their earthly enemies, from the problems that they were experiencing. <coughs> The, the uh, Old Testament also says that the Messiah will come to save them from their sins. But they were not as aware of their sins as a problem. They thought that they were pretty good people, like everybody else thinks they are. They were very aware of these problems that were being caused to them by the Romans. And that's why their mind was more on that thing. How do you resolve it, the fact that the Messiah was to come to save us from our sins and he was to come to save us from our enemies or from all these problems we were experiencing. The only way to resolve it was realizing he would come twice. He was going to come two times. Now, Israel didn't realize that. Before the time of Christ, even up to uh, the beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples are asking, okay, we're ready. We want to see the kingdom of God here on earth. And yet it wasn't time. It wasn't yet the time. And it's often described as this. If you see a mountain from a distance, you don't notice that there may be two peaks and a valley between them, because you just see it as at, a, at a distance. Well, So Christ had to come twice. Why did he first have to come to save Israel from their sins before he could save them from their enemies? There's a number of answers to that. Okay, the first one, this is, this is uh, <clears throat> something I'm interested in because of my background, and I often have to uh, try to share with Jews about Christ. And very often, the Jews are still stuck. He didn't do what he was supposed to do in the Jewish mind. Why did he need to first come and save them from their sins? Number one, okay, if you look at the Old Testament, when did Israel suffer from their enemies? When they rebelled against God, right? God used, so as long as they followed God's promises, everything was really good. When they started worshiping idols or in some way turning away from God, that's when he allowed their enemies to conquer over them and to oppress them. So really the enemies were there for the purpose of making the people realize that they needed the Lord. And they would finally repent and cry out to the Lord and he would save them. And that was great. Everything was great again. Well, 40 years happened and the same thing would happen again. They once again fell under the power of their enemies. So if Christ came and would have just got rid of the Romans... 
he would have had to come back 40 years later and free them from somebody else. Because they would keep sinning and they would keep, God would keep having to bring their enemies against them to remind them of their need for him. That's why he first needed to save them from their sins. And once he, once he saved them from their sins, then he can really lift their enemies. He can come again and the second time really save them from their enemies because now they wouldn't keep sliding back into sin. So really, so that was the more important thing to come and save them from their sins. Another reason for it, we don't often think about it, when Christ comes next, it will be to judge the world. And part of him destroying the enemies of Israel wouldn't be favoritism to Israel. It's part of his judgment of the world. He will be judging people who've been lifting up their hands against him through the seven years of tribulations and finally judging them and saving the, the residue of believing Israel that, that's there. So if Christ came the first time to judge the world, who would be saved? And the answer is no one because there was no salvation yet. No, uh, no way for salvation has yet been created. So Christ had to first come to prepare a way to, for salvation before he could come to judge the world. Uh, let me give you an illustration for that. This is uh, what you could do if you were in the midst of a huge forest fire. Not in the midst of it. Say you saw it coming miles and miles ahead and you actually had some time to prepare. One thing you could do to escape from this fire would be to actually burn a patch of forest, light a patch of forest, wait till all the trees or bushes in the area were burned, then you can safely step into that spot. And when the huge forest fire passes, it's going to pass you because there's nothing to burn around. So you would be safe. And that's what God has, got, has done through Christ. Christ has come. The wrath of God for our sin was poured on Christ and was exhausted completely. And you now can step into Christ where the sin, your sins have been completely judged and when the judgment of this world comes, you're completely safe because you're standing in a place where God's judgment was already spent. God has already judged Christ for your sins. Once you're in him, you're safe. In the same way, Christ came the first time to prepare a salvation for Israel so that they will have a place of safety when Christ comes the second time to judge the world. So he had to come twice, and he had to first come to save them from their sins. And that's really the real enemy we have. The thing that really makes us suffer is our sins. It's not these other things in our life. And many people come to church because of problems they have in their lives, problems with their spouse or with their children or financial problems or health problems. And it's never a bad idea to come to church, but that's not the primary thing God wants to save you from. <clears throat> the primary thing he wants to save you from is your sins. It's your sins that hurt you. It's your sins that really separate you from God. And once he deals with the sin, then that's when you're ready for heaven. And that's the place where there's no tears and no sadness and no sickness. But first, we have to take care of the sin issue, which is what Christ had to do in coming to Israel. Uh, really quick, the next uh, three major points in this prophecy, and then we'll be done. The next one is in verses 74, uh, actually more in, in, verse, in verse 74 and 75, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. We were worshiping the Lord this morning in our breaking of bread, <clears throat> talking about him as the one who dwells in unapproachable light. And... Uh, Yet, the purpose of God serving you 
sorry, the purpose of God saving you was to bring you to himself so you can know him in this unapproachable light. So you can actually come to know uh, God as he uh, wanted you to. There's a, there was a, uh, I need to remember what it's called, short catechism written 400 years ago uh, by the uh, Scottish church in order to teach people about the things of God. And, and they had probably the really thick uh, statement of faith or book that they would use to teach the pastors and uh, people who were responsible in teaching the Word of God. And then they had something they called a short catechism because it was something for, that laymen, laymen could understand, laymen like me and you could maybe understand. And it was written in the form of a question, 107 questions with a very simple question, with a very simple answer, even though it can be very deep. And on this one, this is probably the most famous of them. The question was, uh, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We were created for the purpose of knowing God. And that's why he saves you. He saves you so you can come to be with him and come to know him. Uh, talking about the light, that's, that's all of God's attributes, his love, his mercy, his kindness, coming to know what God is like. That's what, what we were saved to. Uh, next section we have, Zechariah actually starts talking about his son, and I think this is kind of neat. John was the forerunner of the Messiah. Zechariah was the forerunner of the forerunner of the Messiah. He actually got to announce the coming of his son. And uh, what was the purpose of John, or what does he tell us about John? He repeats here the words to prepare his ways. The Messiah was going to come, and as it turns out, and, and you, we'll, we'll see it very clearly in the gospel, people were not prepared. They didn't want what Jesus came to offer. Jesus came to offer them salvation from their sin. And people kept saying, no, no, we're okay. You know, we, we need the Romans offer back. And that was the purpose of John, to try to wake up people to the fact they needed to be saved from their sins. And to this day, what keeps most people out of heaven is the fact they don't realize they need to be saved. They don't believe they're so bad that God will send them to hell. And because of that, they perish. The last section we have, uh, I named the experience of salvation. In verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. <clears throat> how, you, how do you describe to a person who's never seen light what like, light is like? You can't. And that's the imagery he uses here. Those who have, been, who have been sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's his description of humanity. Upon them now, light has shone. You can't, you can't tell people what light is like if they haven't seen it. And that's the imagery he uses. There's light. And um, <clears throat> I never finished my story of uh, how I was saved. But uh, what was missing for me was the realization that I was a sinner and needed to be saved. And when God finally got through to me and made me understand the fact that I was a sinner, and, because, and through that, the understanding of what it is that Christ has come, that Christ has come into this world to pay the punishment for my sin in my place, that's when the light dawned on me. And I remember kind of you know, walking a little bit dazed and um, the thing that I sensed more at the time was the love of God. I was just struck 
with the love of God. And that's what it means, light. The light we're talking about isn't physical light. It's the knowledge of God coming into the place where all of a sudden you start knowing what God is like. And for me, the first thing I was hit was his tremendous love for me. So I hope as we review this passage, we, we recognize the change that happened in Zechariah himself. And then in Zechariah's words to us, his desire that we experience the same change. This is the experience that Zechariah himself has gone for. And uh, rather than me standing and, ex- and expressing more my experience about it, uh, we have a closing hymn that will capture some of that thought. Uh, since Jesus came into my heart, let me pray and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, we recognize you didn't owe us any of this salvation, this uh, wonderful message that you've given to Zacharias and then through Zacharias communicated to the people of his day. You communicated that same wonderful message uh, to us in your word today and you want us to believe it and you want us to receive it. So I pray if there's anybody here who hasn't yet received and believed that message and experienced its life-changing power that you might uh, draw them to yourself and show them that same light, which is your love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.